Welcome to Ethics Today. This is a podcast where we talk about some ethical issues that are currently in the news. Um, today's episode is, is vaccines, and, and there's a lot of confusion right now, a lot of information about the, the newest COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, the FDA is, is uh, in the process of approving one of them right now. I think there was some approval latest news uh, advisory committee approved the Pfizer vaccine today and then I think it's final approval tomorrow um, but we're talking to somebody who's an expert at explaining this sort of thing to people Dr. Chris Main an immunologist who teaches at Viterbo University welcome Chris yeah thank you Rick thank you for having me and uh, we're also joined by Jill Miller who is the program coordinator at the DB Reinhardt Institute for Ethics and Leadership and we are streaming this live to Facebook. And so if you're watching this on Facebook and you have any questions for Dr. Main, please feel free to enter them into the comment section and we'll integrate those questions into, the, into our session here this evening. So Chris, um, I wanted to, to talk to you first of all um, about uh, just how hard it is to get the truth on this. And I, and, I'm saying this as somebody who teaches ethics. I've been teaching ethics for, well, over 25 years. And um, one of the things I always talk about is the importance of getting the truth first. Like it's the most important way of thinking about ethical issues. And then you can go on and talk about the consequences that does something work or how does it affect people. And then you can talk about fairness. And there's a lot of fairness issues with the vaccine, how it gets distributed, right? Yeah. Um, but it, this has been interesting teaching this year with students. Um, they're, they're really latching onto this. With every issue they're talking about, they're saying to me, the most important thing is the truth, getting an understanding of the facts, which I think is because we're living in a society right now where it's really hard to get agreement. And the latest survey from Associated Press indicates that only half of Americans say they want to get the vaccine, which seems astounding to me. Uh, there's a quarter of the people who say they're unsure whether they want to get it, and a quarter of people say they do not want it. So this is, that's a long-winded introduction to a question. What do you say to those people who are concerned about the safety of the vaccine? Like, why, why should they feel confident that they can they can get this. It'll be it'll be healthy for them and won't have adverse effects. Yeah, I think I think the first thing I would say to those people is that your feelings are natural, and and that is there's nothing wrong with feeling nervous about something that's going into your body. Right. This is exactly why we actually have clinical trials. Right. That's why these exist, and that's why these extremely rigorous processes. Uh, exist for vaccines or any other medicine, right? Now, vaccines, people get a little bit more uh, into this. I don't know uh, why. They're actually the safest and most effective medicine we have, but I think it has to do with, you know, the fact it's being injected in needles and it ties into lots of things and a very deep history of misinformation. You know, this goes back, you know, a century, you know, and uh, I guess what I would say is to think of a few things. Uh, number one, uh, right now, uh, these are some of the largest uh, clinical trials that have been done in a long time at this scale, right, this speed. And so we've had 75,000 people enrolled between Pfizer and Moderna. And so if there were adverse effects, you know, that were at a significant rate, like we would know that, right? Okay, so that's one. The other thing I would say too, is oftentimes people want to, to think, you know, there's some sort of uh, secret behind the scenes things going on here. But I guess my other question would be, who does it benefit to put out a bad vaccine, right? I, I don't think it would benefit anyone, right? Because right now we have several very uh, large uh, pharma, uh, pharmacological companies, right? Competing to have the best. Now by that, they mean, efficacious, which means it works well, right? It prevents disease and also extremely safe. If these aren't safe, right? Or if these don't work, 
like then one of these companies is going to defeat the other, right? And so it really doesn't benefit anyone to put out a bad product right now. And so they're all racing and going very fast. And, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about why this was at such a fast scale and why that's not a worry either in a bit here. Uh, but it really doesn't benefit anyone to put out a bad or unsafe product. And we will know that if that's the case. And it would be not a competitor in this market. So you're, you say it wouldn't be a competitor because there's a lot of competitors. We'll talk about this a little bit. And, and they're, some of them are developing, they're using different technologies for vaccine development, right? Yeah. But, but I want to talk about the speed thing because it took seven years to develop the polio vaccine, nine years for measles, 34 years for chickenpox, HPV took 15 years, and now we're talking about several vaccines being developed simultaneously in about six months. And that just seems unbelievable, I think, to a lot of people. So explain why we should have confidence in something developed that quickly. For, yeah, and, and again, for one, like, I would, anyone who's like, this scale and the speed and how fast this happened makes me ask questions, I would say, good. It kind of should. Like you said, it, it, it's come at a speed that's different than others. And that's natural. I certainly was the same way. Uh, along this process, I was like, I am watching very carefully because there's going to be, you know, some people might want them to cut corners to get this thing done because we all want to get through this. You know, this is miserable. And a lot of people are dying, but I was very invested in making, you know, keeping track and making sure they weren't cutting corners on safety. And they, they haven't actually. And so I, I should actually use this moment to point out, I do not work for a, pharm a pharmacy company. Uh, uh, I do not work for big pharma. I never have. I never will. I'm a, I'm a researcher, a scientist, and a teacher, uh, and an immunologist. So that's where I come from on this. And uh, the reasons that it's been able to go fast um, are many, but they all kind of go into three categories. One is sort of the science. The second are people. And the third is money. And so as far as the science, a lot of those vaccines you mentioned, right, that's decades ago, many of those were developed. And so that just, you know, science moves in leaps and bounds as far as technology and how fast and how well we can do things. And so just the fact that we are a more modern and different science with new techniques, new equipment, new approaches has made this go faster. And so it's no, uh, it, it's no coincidence that the three vaccines that are out right now are all newer technologies, not the older technologies that something like uh, the measles vaccine would have been. And well, so that's and, and many of those, those earlier vaccines were developed without any computers. And so now, I mean, there's a possible, I mean, computers just speed things up tremendously. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can you imagine? It's, 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 it's amazing to think that they were ever done and how they were created so effectively then, you know, and, and this is, you know, one of the things I would love for people to take away from this is the speed at which this has happened and how this has happened seems striking and shocking and that's good and natural that you should feel that way but also it's like a modern medical and scientific miracle like i i just am blown away when i read about this and so we talked about the way in which the science has progressed and maybe we'll talk about how those vaccines are different in a bit but the second are people right and so what i mean by people are both people willing to work on this and the people willing to be on the front lines doing the development. And so when you have a global pandemic at this scale, all of the most famous and most uh, brilliant immunologists and scientists out there have all dropped what they were doing to all focus on this. It's sort of a global uh, investment of just brain power and person power pushing in the same direction. So people doing the work, but also what really is the largest time sink on clinical trials is enrolling people and then waiting for them to actually get sick, right? And so if you run a, a clinical trial for any other drug, it takes you a very long time to find all the people who have this disease or who are at risk for it, explain it to them, get investment that they'll actually take, uh, uh, enroll in this trial when they don't know whether they're getting the real treatment or the, the placebo, right? It takes a very long time to get those people, generally. Not only that, then you have to wait for enough of them to get sick 
And that's always a set number, right? To see if you can see a major difference between the placebo and the treated groups. And again, that takes time generally. But in this case, because we're in such a very extreme historical pandemic, right? The number of people who are willing to jump in to a trial immediately was enormous. Tens of thousands, right? Wanted the opportunity to potentially get this or at least help out, okay? And then on the other side of things, it's sort of, you know, ironic, but because uh, some countries, including the US, have handled this so poorly, and because our infection rates are so high, it's actually a product of our failure that so many people got sick fast enough in these trials that we were actually able to very quickly see this diverging difference between people who got the vaccine and people who did not in that placebo group. And so the number of people that we could get immediately the number of people who then got sick immediately were so much above and beyond any other trial that's been done that that alone cut years off the time. And then the third is money, right? Usually vaccines actually are not a moneymaker. And so it's a very long process to enroll some patients in phase one, see if there's a big enough difference in phase one. Then you have to write a whole new proposal uh, to companies and to, to groups to see if you can get money to continue to phase two. And then after phase two, you enroll patients again. So you wait again for people. So every step along the way, you wait for people and then you wait for money. And you have to write things and, and propose things and sell things and why you should get investment from this company when usually the profits are very small. Money was no object this time because every country in the world basically said, here, take this enormous amount of our gross domestic product, essentially, and you take it and solve this because we need to have an answer to this because it's killing our economy. It's killing our people, right? And so the investment of money was just wiped. Money was, money was not an object because every country in the world was willing to just throw money at this problem to get it done. So we were producing vaccines, building factories to make the vaccines before we even knew if they worked. And so there was an investment in infrastructure that basically, you know, there will probably be buildings raised that were built to build one particular vaccine and maybe that one's not gonna be particularly effective eventually. And oh well, we had all that equipment ready to go, but that's a sunk cost. So the number of sunk costs that were just completely accepted that would never be accepted by any sort of company doing a normal vaccine in a normal clinical trial was just wiped years, again, years and years off from this process. Yeah, because usually you don't have that kind of government investment up front. So these are, these are the, the pharmaceutical companies are doing this. They've got investors who want to make money off of it. It's very risky because a lot of it doesn't turn out to be profitable. Um, but they're, they're going to be more cautious, right, ordinarily, because it is so risky. So here, I mean, we've got, don't we have hundreds of companies around the world developing oh, yeah. different kinds of vaccines all at the same time? Yeah. 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 So, so there's, so there's that, you explained how, like, how it could develop so quickly. Um, could you talk a little bit about the approval process? And, and you mentioned a little bit about that, you know, why, it's, why it goes faster. Now, I served on the IRB for male health system here in La Crosse for a number of years. And, and I know how slow it ordinarily works because a lot of things that are being treated, you have a few patients here and there, and it takes a long time because you have to have a control group that's getting a placebo or, you know, to measure the effectiveness against. And, um, so this can go really quickly there. Um, uh, how, how does that, in phase three trials, how do they really ensure the safety? I mean, can you explain a little bit about how that group of people is evaluating the trials and what they're looking for during that time? Yeah, so there's actually a table um, out there that you could, if you Google severe adverse events, there's sort of a defined number of things that are particularly being watched for in a vaccine trial. And they can happen at low levels versus levels that are more debilitating, right? And so almost all vaccines, right, have the same sort of minor adverse events, right? Which are soreness at injection site, uh, fever, fatigue, uh, and maybe headache, right? Some of those minor things that most of us get from a vaccine 
which are actually, to be honest, a good sign. They, they show that the vaccine's working, that it's activating your immune response. And so I fully expect all these vaccines are going to have side effects where you'll feel sore and you'll feel kind of tired. It's a, a really great immunologist named uh, Shane Crotty put it uh, really well the other day where he said, if you go to the gym to improve the performance of your muscles and get stronger, you feel sore. If you go uh, to the immune system gym to make your immune system better, you can get a little sore too. And so I thought that was good. It's how you know it's working. So the other sort of more severe adverse events people are looking out for, things like Guillain-Barre disease, right? Uh, anaphylaxis is one of the others that people look out for, right? A severe allergic response uh, to a vaccine. Those are all reported by the patients. They are required to be uh, reported by any uh, physician that's working with someone in one of these trials, or even after, now, now that we're starting to uh, vaccinate people, UK has started vaccinating people, all of the physicians that work with people who have gotten the vaccine are required to report these severe adverse events. Now, one thing to keep in mind, right, is we fully expect when we're giving this to this many people, right, imagine, right, the number that when you give something to, to 40,000 people, well, what's the chance of one out of those 40,000 people having a stroke? Well, extremely high, probably more than one out of 40,000, right? And so we need to then uh, investigate when something happens health-wise to those individuals, see if we can find a, a way that that seems to trace and make sense with the vaccine, and also then compare the rate that those are happening in the vaccinated group with, say, the rate in uh, the placebo group. And so like an anaphylaxis response is one we look out for, right? A few of those have happened in the trial for, I believe, the Pfizer one. However, they're actually equivalent. There's, I believe, six in uh, the uh, vaccinated group and five in the placebo. So that does not seem to be attributable to the vaccine, right? In fact, some of those yeah. might even not be true anaphylaxis. It might be things like vasovagal syncope, which means kind of feeling lightheaded and, and uh, when you get vaccinated, which we all know some folks have. Okay, so yeah, so there could be responses that are that say associated with getting the shot that are not necessarily a product of the vaccine itself. And that's why it's really important to have these, these controlled studies, right? Right. Um, could you talk about um, how this, so that I wanna look at the, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which is under the process of review right now by the FDA, and then Moderna's next week. They both use messenger RNA. Yeah, so yeah. I know enough to be able to say messenger RNA, but I have no idea what it is or how it works. So could you, exp yeah. and, and, and my understanding is this is a brand new technology. We've never had a messenger RNA vaccine before. Yeah. So could you explain how that works and why people can have confidence in something that's complete, a completely new technology? Yeah. And so as far as it being completely new, it's completely, this will be the first uh, vaccines that have completed the FDA uh, review process through all three phases that are mRNA. We've had other mRNA vaccines in the FDA trials before. Um, in fact, mRNA vaccines have been around for, I think about six, seven years, maybe something like that. I believe like there was an experimental rabies vaccine. Now the challenge with all these is they're competing against previously uh, developed vaccines and other uh, approaches, and again, with diseases that aren't as uh, common and don't have as much monetary investment in it. So these other mRNA uh, you know, trials have sort of been kind of you know, crawling along as they usually do, and then all of a sudden this disease comes in, and we already have this technology that has been practiced with other vaccines, and we can try it with this. And we uh, were able to make it happen fast, and I say we as in science, right? Because, or humanity for that matter. Uh, because we also had a lot of information about the other SARS virus, right? The original SARS um, is very similar to the novel coronavirus SARS-CoV-2. And so we knew that, say, the spike epitope was probably the most likely to raise immune responses. We could get the, the genome from that right away. So now to come back to what a messenger RNA is. So messenger RNA is the way our DNA gets anything done. So our DNA is trapped in the nucleus. And in order to 
send out instructions to make proteins, which is what makes up most of us, most of our cells, most of our body, that DNA makes an mRNA, which then goes out to something called the ribosome. The ribosome is an organelle in our cell that builds our proteins. So it's a tiny little short message that tells the ribosome what to build. Now, the way that works for a vaccine is we can take an mRNA message that codes for a little piece of that virus, a little piece of the novel coronavirus, specifically the piece that naturally our immune system will raise a response to when it comes into our body. So when coronavirus gets into us, if we're protected from it, the people who have had it before who do have protection, we know that their antibodies are mostly to this little spike that sticks up. So what we've done, what science has done is taken the sort of directions that the virus uses usually to have us make that spike for them. And they've only taken the directions for just that one little piece of the virus, not the whole virus, not even close, but just one protein. And they put it into an mRNA. And that's what the vaccine is. Now that mRNA goes into our body, our body makes just that little spike. And now we activate the immune system to the part it would have raised an immune response to anyway. And then when the real virus comes into us, we already have these blocking antibodies to go and stop that virus from infecting us. So my knowledge of how vaccines work is really crude. So my understanding that a lot of the earlier vaccines that have been developed historically actually introduce the virus, say a dead or portions of the particles of the virus or um, inactivated somehow parts of the virus so that, and that's how the immune system recognizes that and builds up those antibodies. But this is different in that it's not really introducing the virus, it's just introducing a message to prepare the immune system to fight the virus. Is that? It is, it is a message to make a tiny little fragment of the virus and a piece of that virus that could never do anything to us. You know, it, it, it couldn't. And so that's one of the reasons why, you know, we have no concerns about there being any sort of infection caused by this. It's impossible, right? And so there are other uh, vaccines out there, for example, that aren't recommended for immunocompromised people because they're weakened versions of the virus itself. Now, those usually are pretty effective in people with functional immune systems at raising a real robust response to to keep you from getting infected. But if you don't have an immune system, a weakened virus theoretically could, could actually cause an infection, right? Whereas this type that we have now, uh, both the Moderna and the Pfizer are just this tiny little message. And sometimes people get worried because I talked about DNA and how that mRNA comes from DNA in our body normally, right? It's a copy of part of the message. Well, the important thing to remember is mRNA is a, is a message. It's very short, a little bitty copy of a message. So it can't go the, it can't affect our DNA, right? It, in fact, it can't even get to our DNA. Our DNA is in the nucleus of our cell, the innermost portion of it. The mRNA acts out here, outside of the nucleus. So it gets in there and then to the ribosome, that little part that I said reads it and makes the protein and makes that spike. The mRNA, the little message that comes into here, can't even get into the nucleus where the DNA is. So it couldn't even get it there if it wanted to. And if it does, there's nothing it can do anyway. It's just a tiny little piece of just a few letters, whereas the DNA is millions. So, so we're not worried about, I guess, mutations or something like that happening within our bodies because of this RNA being introduced? Not, not even remotely, no. No, it's not possible. The, the parts of the, like, the sort of things that would need to happen to do that just don't exist. It's like the parts of the, the sort of machinery that would have to perform to do that just isn't there. And, and because this is, um, this is messenger RNA, it's not introducing a weakened form of the virus. You say that so that it, it's safe even for people with weakened immune systems. That's why we should feel really confident in in giving this this first batch, it, it's going to healthcare workers, but also the frail, elderly, you know, in nursing homes, and we shouldn't worry about the effects on them. They're not; they shouldn't have really more negative responses than the general population. I would think. Right. right. right? So, there, so there's two reasons to feel confident in that, right? One is that, like you said, 
based upon what we know about it and how it works, it doesn't make sense that it would necessarily uh, cause a, a greater risk for people who are, are more elderly. But even more meaningful than that, a whole lot of elderly individuals were included in that 75,000 people who were in those trials, right? And so if that was a risk, we would have seen it and we didn't see it. We saw it was effective in those groups, in fact, which is important. And it was effective across all sorts of different diverse populations that were given this, which is again, a really good sign. And another thing about the clinical trials process I should probably mention is when we get through this step, that's probably going to happen tomorrow, right? The final approval of this emergency use authorization. That doesn't mean we stop getting data, right? There's what's called phase four uh, uh, clinical trial. And so we'll keep getting the information, keep getting the data and keep looking for comparisons to see if anything comes up that should be concerning. And I understand that one of the members of the advisory committee today at the FDA had concerns about um, approving this for 16 years and older, because I don't think 16 and 17 year olds, I don't, I'm not sure they were included in that phase three trial. And there were some concerns about the safety for them. But, but my understanding, like others said, like, well, it's not the phase three trial isn't the end of the research. So continue to gather data on this as they go along before it even gets to the, that 16, 17 year old population. Yeah, and, it, and that would be extremely important, right? Because we went, because we're moving at such a clip, right? Really the only the thing we know, right? Is we know in the 75,000 people who've been given these that it's very safe. And we know it's highly effective at preventing disease and highly effective at preventing severe disease. Now we don't know a few things yet. We don't know, does it work in children? Should it be given to children yet? Uh, does it say, for example, I don't believe any pregnant women were given it. Should it, pregnant women be given it? There isn't any reason to think it would be dangerous, right? But I don't believe they were included in that trial. And then another thing that's really key that we need to track in these individuals was those original trials just looked for, hey, in my placebo and my treated group, who got sick, right? Who got symptomatic infections? And is there a difference? Real easy question to ask to find fast answers to the number one question we want. Does it prevent disease? What we don't know is does it prevent transmission? It's theoretically possible, right? You could vaccinate someone and that person who got the vaccination might never get disease, right? That's what we're seeing is very rarely will someone vaccinated get the disease, but maybe they asymptomatically get infected just in their nose, right? In their upper respiratory tract and therefore they can spread it still. We just don't know. Now, sometimes I read in the popular press, people say, does it, we don't know if it prevents transmission. Well, that's because we haven't asked yet, right? We haven't followed up with that question. That's a harder thing to ask. You have to get all your people who you vaccinated in and swab them, right? But that will be asked, right? And we will be able to track that. And I fully expect it's going to decrease transmission. Whether it'll be 90%, like it's preventing disease, I don't know. But I'm sure, I, I'm pretty confident it's going to prevent transmission. It would be unlike, uncommon for it to not. So, um, um, so this is one, one of the questions that, that uh, Jill got. Well, I should mention, Jill was busy today going around asking people what, what questions they might have for the vaccine. So she gave me a list of questions. And so I've got a few of them here. Awesome. And, then, and I just want to remind if anybody's watching live on Facebook that you can type in questions. Jill's keeping an eye on the comment section. So just let me know, Jill, when we have some questions there. So go ahead and ask those. But one of them is, if, if I get the vaccine, am I safe from people who choose not to get one? And, and I think part of that question is how big a risk, how big a factor is it if we have a number of people that aren't vaccinated yeah. in the population? Yeah, and so that's actually sort of what, you know, when we talk about the, how effective a vaccine is, right? That's sort of what's being measured in these clinical trials because those people who were in the vaccine arm of this trial were likely moving about in uh, society as anyone else would around people who would have had no opportunity to become vaccinated. So the goal is yes, that if you get the vaccine, it will be protective to you. And then the overarching goal of course, is to get enough of us 
uh, vaccinated that we have protective immunity. So essentially, there's nowhere to harbor this virus, right? It tries to go from one infected person to another and it keeps trying to find people and it can't because everyone's been vaccinated and it dies off. This is actually how we eradicated smallpox, right? Smallpox does not exist in a human on the planet. One of the greatest medical breakthroughs of all time because of herd immunity from vaccination. So here's another question. So we're looking at 90% effectiveness among these um, with the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines and then also AstraZeneca, which is a different kind of technology. We'll talk about that in a little bit too. Uh, but looking at really high rates of effectiveness and yet the flu vaccine is say 40 to 60% effective. That's kind of its range. Yeah. Why the huge difference? Great question. So, uh, so flu is, so every kind of virus almost has its own superpowers, you know, is, is how I think about it, right? They have something that they are good at that allows them to continue to exist, right? Influenza is really good at mutating. It swaps pieces out and it has just chunks of DNA that essentially can rearrange and, and, and mutate itself. So that's one reason. Flu is extremely good at mutating to avoid our immune system. That's why we don't ever eradicate it, right? Coronavirus, it seems, while it mutates because everything mutates, if that's what viruses do, that's what DNA does, right? Uh, it does not seem to have that same ability to really just hide from our immune system yet or make itself more uh, infectious yet, not, not at least to a level that's extreme like flu. The other part is sort of more with how we develop um, vaccines for influenza. So we have to plan sort of a year in advance which of these strains that are moving around throughout the globe do we think are going to be the ones to break through next winter and cause all the problems. And so there's huge, you know, committees from across the globe that all get together and say, well, this one's over here and this one's here and this one's here. And so when you get these flu vaccines, oftentimes they're against three or four strains, you know, and they're often named after where they're currently at, you know, and it's sort of a guessing game. And even if we end up protecting against those, maybe another one from a different part of the globe will break through in the US. And well, the vaccine wasn't really designed for that. Now it'll protect some oftentimes against that. It's better than nothing, but it won't fully protect against it like it would have the one from this part of the globe that we did design it for. And so it's because of this sort of guessing game, the fact there's multiple influenza viruses all the time out there, and the fact that influenza is really good at, at mutating to avoid that we get these levels that are more like 50, 60%, which I might add is still super important for public health. Right. The other day I was listening to Michael Osterholm talk about um, on this topic on vaccines and, and he was talking about the 1918 flu um, and how lethal that was. I, something, if I think I got this right, I thought he said that in 1918, seven of, out of 10 American soldiers who died in World War I died from influenza. And, um, and, and he expressed some concern, you know, that if we would have uh, influenza virus like that, as lethal as the 1918 virus, it would really be devastating, uh, worse than what we're experiencing with COVID. And I'm wondering, is this new, all these new technologies we're developing and this the things that we're learning about the development of vaccines, um, would, that, would that serve us well if we, there was a really, really bad influenza vaccine, a new strain of it that, that started going around? Um, would we be able to develop a much more effective than say a 50% effective vaccine or is, it, is, there, is that the difference between flu and COVID that we wouldn't be able to do that? Yeah, so certainly some of the things that we're learning and uh, doing could be very helpful. So for example, all of the source control things we're doing. So things, and by that I mean things like masks, distancing, right? Uh, those undoubtedly have an effect on influenza. Like in the Southern hemisphere last year when uh, coronavirus first uh, was spreading there, right? They took on these masking and distancing approaches and you saw that, that their flu outbreak then just plummeted. Also this year, it's still early in flu season, right? But most people are reporting that the flu season right now is 
you know, very, very little, right? Because the same things that we're doing to prevent against this respiratory virus of coronavirus is also uh, protective against influenza. So those sorts of basic public health measures would have a huge impact, especially if now that we're practiced with them, if people are a little more comfortable with them and would adapt to them. That's one of my worries, honestly, is that when it comes down to it, this disease is, is horrible and it's spreading like crazy, but it could be worse, actually. It's not as deadly as it could be. It doesn't affect children. So, you know, I, I hope that we do learn from this. Um, the technologies, uh, I don't know about uh, some of the technologies that we're using now and their ability to be utilized for influenza, but what I do know is that actually just this week, and this would have been huge news otherwise, but coronavirus is everything, right, in sciences, um, there was a, a really a important clinical trial launched uh, for a universal flu vaccine, which is sort of in flu vaccine world, sort of the holy grail is like, what if we don't have to try to predict anymore? What if we don't have to guess? What if we don't have to keep up with all these mutations? What if we can find a way to develop a flu vaccine that will be universal for all influenzas? And so I know uh, Florian Kramer, who is a, a vaccinologist uh, in the US, uh, just recently um, uh, published some work on this, uh, trying to really go after this uh, universal flu vaccine, and that would be a, a game changer. Wow, that's great news. Yeah, I hadn't heard anything about it, and that's, that's the way that kind of other kind of health news is just being obliterated by COVID, just like everything else. It's pretty else. in the weeds yet for immunology, right? It's it's not it's not out there, you know, being used or being, uh, you know. Uh, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not near as far along as any of these other vaccines are right now, so. Um, so are there any other, you talk about allergies, there's some of those side effects. Are there any other side effects with any of these vaccines that are being developed, even the ones say that in, in, say in phase one or phase two trials, are there other side effects that you've been hearing about that, that so, may be a concern? So, so like I, I said, there are certainly the typical uh, side effects that we expect and almost sort of want, right? The soreness, the headache, the fatigue, showing that it's working, right? And that the, the rates of those for these vaccines are, are pretty high. So I think if you get this, you should expect to get a sore arm. You should expect to feel pretty worn out for a day and also know that that's coming and then know that that's a sign that it's working. Um, and so that, that is definitely common with these. Um, and so that's something definitely people should know, but you know, tetanus is always that way too, right? Tetanus always makes your arm a bit sore. The, uh, any others, uh, you know, other things we look for like Guillain-Barre, I, I have not heard anything of that. Guillain-Barre is a, is a disorder that causes uh, the myelin coating around your neurons to uh, sort of be attacked by your immune system. And it happens in response to inflammation. Now, important to know is it doesn't happen in response to just vaccines. In fact, there's a higher rate of Guillain-Barre to normal influenza infection than there is to the vaccine. And so one of the other things we want to keep in mind when we compare adverse effects is compare the adverse effects of the vaccine to the adverse effects of the disease, right? Because that's what we're protecting against, right? So that's a very key point. And when you look at coronavirus and the long-term effects that seem to be coming from this and the relatively high rate of adverse effects, even, you know, people above 20, I believe it, it it's deadly at a rate of, you know, one out of 19,000 or something to that effect, right? Uh, infection fatality rate for people above 20, which, you know, includes all adults essentially. But the other, the rate of adverse effects, such as, you know, Rick, you and I probably know our students who have had infections and still can't quite get their breath to where they, they should be in their collegiate athletes, right? Mm -hmm. Or they just feel like, you know, they just still don't feel right. And it's been months and months. So these sort of adverse effects, right? You have to compare those to the vaccine too. And, that, and those are significant. So yeah, not that I know of to answer you sh your, okay. shortly, but I, I also haven't, haven't dealt into all of the details of everything that's been compared. I know there was one of the vaccine trials was paused for a second because someone had an adverse effect and they went and, and investigated and it was in the placebo arm. And so that's a good sign, right? If you see those things happening, that means it's working the way it should because someone had something, we stopped and we investigated it, found out it was in the placebo arm and then restarted. Yeah, good. Jill, did you have a question for us or are we so good? 
we're still good. Um, but uh, Chris, just from my um, kind of uh, canvassing different community members today, um, I really liked what you said about uh, it's natural to have fear. It's good to have fear and it's good to ask questions. I really think that just takes um, a lot of defensiveness out of the conversation. And a question that I have gotten quite a bit is, how do you talk with family members um, who are not interested in getting the vaccination? Um, and there's, once again, that you have both sides of the equation. You have the passionate, you need to be vaccinated, and, and no, I'm not going to. And how can they coexist? Yeah, I, I personally am a, a strong believer in asking questions. So you think you're not going to, to get the vaccination right now. Um, and so Rick's uh, quote earlier about 50% of people saying, you know, they're, they're going to get it, uh, which leaves 25% being unsure and 25% saying probably not. To be honest with you, those sorts of percentages are often um, reported, but in practice what's seen is that that's people feeling unsure because they don't know yet, right? And as they see people get it, and as they know more people get it, those almost always grossly underpredict the number of people who do end up adopting and, and taking on and, and getting the vaccine. And so I don't want people to hear those numbers and go, oh my gosh, it's, or, or maybe thinking, oh man, maybe those people know something I don't. It's, it's reflective of the fact it's not really out and being done yet. And, you know, that 25% of unsure will probably come along eventually. And then some of that other 25% will come too. Now, I think it's important to ask people why, what, is, what are the concerns? And they'll say, you know, I'm worried about side effects. And you say, yeah, you know, I, I would be too, except, you know, I've read this or I know this. And, you know, the other thing I think that helps is science and numbers, which, you know, I've been doing a lot of because that's a bit more my bread and butter. It isn't always convincing to people because it's not too tangible, right? And so oftentimes what can help more is a personal story, right? Well, I am going to get the vaccine and here's why, right? And so I, I should actually add that now. I'm an immunologist. I, I know a lot about this sort of stuff. I read about it constantly. I stay up to date on it. I will get the vaccination the second I can, right? And I will have my, my children get it as soon as it's studied in children and it's, and it's recommended for them. My wife, she will get it as soon as we can. And so I sometimes forget to tell people that, but yeah, I, I, I am definitely, definitely very excited to get this vaccine. And so yeah. that's how I approach it, I guess. You just ask questions and you talk and you have a conversation and you may not convince that person and know that that's not going to happen necessarily immediately, but hopefully they then feel comfortable asking you about it or looking more into it or following up with those things. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, and the other hard part is, right, there is just an enormous misinformation campaign, and it has been for a long time, and checking sources and knowing where you're getting your information and getting it from, you know, people who are expert and not, you know, viral videos or, or something is hard too, but it's not always easy to distinguish those things. Some of those things are pretty polished and pretty, you know, you know effectively done, I guess you could say. So how do you tell if you're just an average person and you're going out there you're trying to find information and you have a you're on social media and a friend says hey watch this here's an expert and you you got you know somebody with good credentials yeah they sound like they know what they're talking about yeah. i mean and and to the outside person i mean they will sound just as credible as you do right now because frankly most of us if we haven't studied this ourselves don't really understand what you're talking about when you talk about messenger RNA. And so like you could, you could, you, it would be pretty easy to sound like you were giving, had the same amount of credibility, but the opposite conclusion. Yeah. So how does one tell who to trust and who not to trust? Yeah. And so this kind of goes for all sort of pseudoscience, uh, uh, sorts of uh, claims or, 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 you know, pitches, uh, quackery, all kinds of stuff, right, is sometimes people, and you'll hear people, you know, who are, you know, very 
supportive of, of getting vaccinated yell, I trust scientists or I trust the doctors. Well, I don't ask anyone to trust an individual doctor or an individual science scientist. I, I would please ask people consider trusting scientific consensus, right? So that's what really matters is where the consensus is, where you have the grand, grand, enormous majority of scientists and enormous majority of doctors. But of course there's kooks with MD behind their name or there's kooks with PhD behind their name who will go out and say just the opposite of things I do. And it's extremely profitable, right? And so I think things to ask are, what does someone have to profit? Okay, do they have ways to profit, whether that be becoming famous or making money or selling a book? Um, are they claiming huge things, large claims that this is going to, this explains everything, right? Like so often you'll hear, um, you know, I don't know, in the dietary world, switching this one aspect of your diet will fix everything, right? Or in the vaccine world, vaccines are attributable to all of these different huge, complex health conditions, right? Uh, autoimmune disease, autism, all of these things, huge, which are super complex and have no one simple answer to their causes, right? It would make no sense for them to. Um, and then uh, I guess I guess those are the two, two large things that I can think, making enormous claims and what someone has uh, to gain. And then just the idea of consensus versus lone wolf sort of Oftentimes it's one big personality yelling, right? Or a couple big personalities yelling instead of a lot of different individuals having you know, measured conversations. If someone claims to know everything and they're not willing to say, oh, well, I don't really know that or I'm not really sure about that or no, I don't think that's connected to the big thing I'm trying to tell you about, then and that's reason to be suspicious, right? Um, here's my simple rule. Um, Boring equals trustworthy. Because <laughs> oh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry about that, but 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 I mean, we have we have a lot of long, boring explanations of what's going on with COVID. About a lot of long, boring explanations about masks and why masks are effective. They, it just isn't very interesting. And when you hear these, you know, these really highly speculative. Um, folks who are really excited about something that they know and nobody else knows, um, what they're selling is the excitement of this kind of novel information. And um, I'm always suspicious of that because, um, and it's another way of saying consensus, I guess boring is also usually consensus. And, and the other thing is, it, you know, it would be really easy for us tonight to create a video talking about vaccines that could go viral, um, right, on social media, that would just take off. Sure. Because the false information spreads a lot faster. Uh, and, um, you know, we'll get a few views on this, but it's not gonna be a big social media hit. Yeah. Um, but with me and ethics, and, and I've served on ethics committees for a couple of different healthcare systems, for internal review boards, I've chaired the internal review board at, at, at Viterbo, um, I, you know, and you with your experience with immunology and explain the details, the two of us, we could create something that would create a lot of doubt about the review process for these and about the way the technology works. And you could, you could use a lot of confusing terminology about genetics and so forth. And, um, and all you would have to lose is your reputation. <laughs> yeah. Right? And, and, but you would be able to gain all these book sales, for example, and you'd gain a reputation in another circle where, you know, you, you feel a bit of fame through that. And I think that's the appealing thing to the people who do that sort of misinformation campaign. You know, it's like you said, it's, yeah, it, 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 it always becomes a bit more selfish to me, I guess. Yeah. Rick, I have a couple of questions here. Um, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, so, Chris, if I receive the vaccine, but another person that I am in contact with did not, am I still protected from getting COVID? Yeah. So, for, you know, not as much as, as if they were, right? And so, the more people that have it, the more we protect ourselves. 
but you know, if there's 90% uh, effectiveness of this, then I would say you're approximately 90% protected. Now, what we want to do is protect those other 10%, right? And, and we don't know that we can necessarily predict who's that 10% because even in this clinical trial with all these people, right? A handful of people who got the vaccine did get the infection, right? They did get the disease. Now, that number was extremely small compared to the people who are in the placebo group, which is how we know it works, but it does happen, right? So it can happen. And so will you be protected? Yes. Will you be 100% protected? No, nothing's 100% effective, right? Until we get, yeah, yeah. Until we get enough Sounds people, good. so there's nowhere to harbor this virus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, another question. Um, resources to develop COVID vaccine, vaccines, excuse me, have been tremendous, and the re results have come swiftly. Does that say anything about other illnesses we have learned to live with? Could we see similar results if we expended more resources? Should I repeat that or yeah. did you grab that? I, I think I did get it. So basically, you know, the question yeah. is that we had enormous amount of resources, whether it be people or money, just poured into this one global catastrophe, right? And we're seeing very fast results. If we did that similarly for other things we've learned to live with, could we see similar results? And I think the answer is it depends. So we are lucky in that, like I said, we had some previous knowledge about coronavirus uh, and how to develop a vaccine for it because of work with SARS. And so we were building upon that. And it really was at this one point, one infectious agent that we could target. And so in some ways that problem was simpler than say, let's, let's, let's say cancer, right? Cancer is really a thousand different types of cancer, right? Or more. And so that sort of large issue and solving that would be a lot more complicated, but more money, more resources, more people working on uh, diseases undoubtedly has effects. And we see that all the time, right? And that real investment in research and investment in medical uh, science does pay dividends. It, it's certainly true. Very good. Well, Chris, let's wrap up. I wanted, I wanted to mention this is, um, one reason I like talking to you about this and just having these kind of informal conversations is a, a study that was just reported recently in uh, JAMA in the uh, uh, network open. They did a survey of German residents asking them um, which, which kind, of, kind of scientific reports they trusted the most, the ones with no uncertainty at all or the ones with a certain level of uncertainty saying there's things that we don't know yeah. and they to, to a large extent very high extent said we are more trusting of the ones who say we don't know everything good and <laughs> i thought that re really interesting because that's yeah. what right there's there's things you know and there's things you don't know and, and yeah. yeah yeah i think i think that is one of the you know i mentioned it as one of the things to look out for if someone's claiming they can solve everything and they know everything and that this one big thing they're selling you is the explanation for everything, all these complicated things, that is a reason to be deeply skeptical. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much, Chris. Thank you, Joe, for uh, lining up some questions for us and helping Thanks, us Joe. out. Thanks, Rick. And um, we'll wrap this one up and see everybody next time.